Good morning. My name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. Today we're going to be starting a 12-week series that we're calling Upside Down. And in this Upside Down series, we're going to be slowly reading through and digging into the sermon preached by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. The most popular sermon ever preached by the most prolific preacher who ever lived, and we're going to be in it for 12 weeks, just 12 weeks of just the words of Jesus, and I can't think of a better way to start 2023. But I'd like to offer an alternative name for this sermon before we get into it, because the thing about this particular sermon is that although it is the most famous and well-known sermon ever preached, it's also the most misunderstood sermon ever preached. Because you see, in this sermon, Jesus is going to be talking about a lot of things that you must do talking about a lot of things that you must do, and so a lot of people want to read these words and just walk away with a brand new to-do list, or they want to walk away with a brand new rule of life. I'm going to commit to just doing everything that Jesus says in this, and if I just commit to doing everything Jesus says in the sermon, then I'm going to be all right. But the thing is, if you choose to read these words that way, then by the end of this 12-week series, you're going to have to give away everything you own. You're going to have to pluck out one of your own eyeballs, and you're going to have to cut off one of your own hands. And so, be careful how you take in these words, because the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of things that you need to do better. The Sermon on the Mount is actually not really a sermon at all. In reality, the Sermon on the Mount would be more accurately described as a state of the kingdom address. The same way we give State of the Union addresses, this would be more accurately described as a State of the Kingdom address from King Jesus to a group of people who desire to be a part of his kingdom. These words are the words of King Jesus saying, this is what my kingdom is all about. This is what it looks like when you surrender to me. This is what it looks like when you come to the end of yourself and then fall into me. This is what it looks like when I reign supreme in the heart of mankind and all creation. And the thing about this kingdom that King Jesus is going to paint a picture of is that it is completely upside down to everything we understand about the world. That's where the name of the series comes from. It's completely countercultural. It flies in the face of everything we understand existence to be. And throughout the series, we're going to read some words of Jesus that are going to be some real, is he serious moments? Like, is this, is this literal? We're going to read through some instructions that are literally impossible to carry out. This way of kingdom living that Jesus is going to describe is very foreign to our human nature. And so just be aware as we read this, it'd be really easy to walk away after 12 weeks and feel hopeless. It'd be really easy to walk away after 12 weeks and feel like, man, that'll never be me. I can never live like that. I can never belong to this kingdom. And just for transparency's sake, that's probably what the first 10 years of my Christian walk looked like. I'd go to church, and I'd hear someone tell me about how Christians should be living, and then I'd walk away feeling like, that'll never be me. I can never live like that, and I can never belong to this kingdom. But the thing is, Jesus didn't come to bring despair and hopelessness. He came to bring life and light and joy and grace and power and righteousness and love. And so what is Jesus doing? In this, how does Jesus plan on inflicting life and joy and grace and power and righteousness on anyone by giving them a list of things that they'll never 
be able to do? And the answer to that is what makes the state of the kingdom address so beautiful and creative and powerful. It's because the words aren't simply designed to point you towards kingdom behavior. They're designed to point you towards the king. These words aren't designed to inspire you to get your life together. These words are an invitation to give your life away. These words aren't meant to make you try to fight harder for Jesus. These words are an invitation to let Jesus fight for you. And in a world that says live better and fight harder and get your life together, these words are completely upside down. That's why at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll come back to in 12 weeks, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Meaning, Jesus isn't here to be your advice giver. He's not here to be your life coach. He's not here to be your motivational speaker. He's not here to be your role model. Jesus Christ was there in the beginning, and he spoke creation into existence. Everything was created through him and in him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one who has authority over heaven and earth. And the crazy thing is, he came down to die for you, to be your Savior, and invite you to hit your knees and declare him king. In the words of the famous TV series, Game of Thrones, Jesus invites you to bend the knee. To bend the knee, to bow down before him and acknowledge him and worship him and praise him and invite him into your life. And he says he'll transform you from the inside out. But the thing is, whether you bow down to him now or bow down to him later, you will bow down. For the Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over all creation. One day everyone will bend the knee. It's just up to you to decide whether or not that day is going to be a good day or a not so good day. This is part one of the State of the Kingdom address from the King and Creator of the universe, Jesus Christ. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 starting at verse 1. We'll have the words on the screen or you can use your own Bible if you have one, but before we get into this, let's just pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. I pray as we get into your word this morning that you clarify for us who you are and clarify for us who we are. Clarify our role in this, God. Clarify for us who you desire for us to be in your kingdom, God. And I pray that the truth of the gospel just cuts right through our hearts this morning. I pray we walk away different. Let these words be your words, Lord, and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1, says this. It says, seeing the crowds, Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so we just jump in right in the middle of the action. And there are these massive crowds, multitude of people present, why? Where did these people come from? Well, just to give you a little bit of context about where we are in the narrative of Jesus' life, the end of Matthew chapter 4 tells us what's going on. It says, and he went, Jesus, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him 
from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is moving place to place and healing all of these people. And so people are beginning to follow. And so there are now thousands of people following him pretty much everywhere that he goes. And it says Jesus, seeing the crowds, walks up onto the mountain and sits down and his disciples come to him and he offers this teaching. It says, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your rewards is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This first part of... The Sermon on the Mount is known as the Beatitudes. And I've heard some people call them the B-attitudes, as in be these attitudes that Jesus talks about. But as much as I like puns, this is not the right way to approach this passage because if you approach this passage that way, that makes these words a call to do better, to perform better, to act better. If you do these things then God will give you these things. But that's called legalism. That's transactional. That's you buying blessings from God with your good behavior, and that goes against everything that Jesus taught. The actual definition of the word beatitude in the Oxford Dictionary is supreme blessedness. Supreme blessedness. A state of being supremely blessed, which is actually a lot closer. Because the Beatitudes are not about what you're going to do for God. More accurately, they're about what God is going to do to you. And honestly, we could probably do a week on each one of these. But to cover them all this week, they naturally kind of break it down into three categories. And these three categories show us that the kingdom of heaven operates in a way that's completely upside down to how we understand the world. And the first category falls into what we're going to call Upside-down desperation. Upside-down desperation. Verses 3 through 5 say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Upside-down desperation. Jesus opens His state of the kingdom address by saying, Blessed are those who understand how broken they are. Blessed are those who have experienced great loss. And blessed are those who can be easily overpowered because of their gentle nature. This makes absolutely no sense in terms of how the world operates. No one considers brokenness a blessing. No one considers experiencing great loss a blessing. And no one considers being defenseless a blessing. These are all states of desperation, states of helplessness, and states of hopelessness, and yet Jesus says those who experience these things 
will inherit the earth and experience comfort and experience the kingdom of heaven. How? Well, if you're anything like me, I don't take to the idea of surrendering very easily. I I enjoy being in control. I don't know if anyone else can relate. I I actually like the fight. I, I like the battle. Like, I'm competitive by nature. I desire to win. Thinking about giving up doesn't naturally come to me. Thinking of tapping out just doesn't feel right. And I don't know if that's something that just naturally exists inside of me or if it's just a result of a lifetime of hearing that you have to earn everything that you get. And you can never give up, never stop fighting, never stop giving your best. And don't ask for help. You don't want to appear weak. You never want to appear desperate. And then Jesus comes along and says, well, those who are desperate are the ones who are closest to me. You know, there's... There's something terrifying and also extremely powerful about coming to terms with the fact that you really don't have control over anything. You could work out your entire life and eat healthy your entire life and still die of a heart attack or still have a stroke or still get cancer. You could make all the right career moves and work really hard your entire life and still lose your job or lose your business. You could do all the fertility treatments in the world and try to align everything perfectly and still never have a baby. You could raise your kids better than anyone else and you're still going to see them struggle and suffer. You can't control anything. You can't save anyone. The truth is you need God. Can someone say, I need God? We need God. You need His strength. You need His grace. You need His love. But the thing is, when things are going well, when things are easy, it's really hard to see your need for God clearly. It's, easily, it's easy to get blinded by comfort. And the thing is, those blinded by comfort will rarely turn to God to save them because they don't understand that they need to be saved. That's what makes desperation so powerful. That's what makes rock bottom so powerful, it makes it abundantly clear, like, I need someone to save me. I can't do this on my own. You know, it's funny how voices whisper in your ear, and you can call it the devil, you can call it your own insecurity, but these voices that whisper in all of our ears that you're not good enough, you're weak, you're a sinner, there's something wrong with you, you're never going to do anything right. And these voices tear us apart. And then I can only speak from my own experience, but then there come these moments of desperation in your life where you just throw your hands up at God like, I can't do any of this. I can't do this. I can't do it. And that's when Jesus comes in and says, of course you can't. Why do you think I hung on the cross for you? What do you think all that was about? You were never meant to carry the weight of all these things. It's time to let me have them. Man, the first three Beatitudes, they're just straight gospel because it's Jesus saying, blessed are those who desperately need me because I always show up for them. Upside down desperation. No one desires to be put in desperate situations, but they are a blessing because they allow you to see with clarity that you just don't have when times are easy. 
So blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. But again, this doesn't really just apply to everyone as a general principle. This applies to those who follow Jesus because without Jesus, your suffering, your meekness, being poor in spirit, those aren't good qualities unless you have a Savior to show up when you need Him. The next three Beatitudes go on to show us that not only does King Jesus arrive in our moments of desperation, not only do we experience salvation through Him, but the next three Beatitudes declare to us that by submitting our lives to Jesus, it will result in an upside-down outlook on life. An upside-down outlook on life. Verses 6-8 through say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. An upside-down outlook on life. Let's just be honest and admit that no one naturally exhibits these qualities. No one comes into the world hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I mean, point me in the direction of any non-believer who desires to be right with God, which is really what righteousness boils down to. You know, you don't care to be right with God if you don't even believe that He exists. And mercy, no one's naturally merciful. I'm not talking about being kind to others. That's not mercy, that's kindness. Mercy at its core means showing compassion or forgiveness to someone who you have the power to punish or exact vengeance on. Mercy is showing compassion or forgiveness towards someone who you have the power to punish or exact vengeance on. I'll just go straight to an awful hypothetical example. If you're a parent and someone were to kill your child, and then you would have the power in your hands to rightfully deliver justice by locking them up forever or sentencing them to death, I defy you to find me one person who is naturally born with the intrinsic type of mercy that would forgive that person. Forgive the person who killed their child. No one comes into the world merciful like that. No one forgives like that. And you might say, Dustin, you brought up literally the darkest situation ever. You brought up literally the worst case scenario, but actually I just brought up the gospel. Because the truth is, each and every one of us is responsible for the death of Jesus. Our sins nailed Jesus to a cross. We killed the Son of God, and yet even by every logical metric, God could justifiably punish us. He offers us mercy. He does something that we could never do. And then when we say yes to Him, He plants that mercy inside of you. In 2018, U.S. gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar, he was put on trial for abusing 265 young women while pretending he was giving them medical treatment. 265. He was an actual living monster. This young woman named Rachel Den Hollander who was one of those victims, and she was the first one to bring forward allegations. She faced him in the courtroom, and she forgave him in front of the entire country. She said this, she said, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be 
crushing. And that's what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. She shocked the entire world and forgave him. In a different story, a different story in 2019, an off-duty police officer named Amber Geiger, she entered the home of a man named Botham Jean and she shot and killed him in his own apartment with no cause. She murdered him. While on trial for that murder, she had to face the man's younger teenage brother, Brant. And in front of a courtroom and observing nation, Brant told his brother's killer, he said this, he said, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I love you just like anyone else. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I personally want the best for you. I think giving your life to Christ would be what my brother would want for you. And then with the judge's permission, Brant walked across the courtroom and he hugged his brother's killer as she collapsed, sobbing in his arms. And Jesus says, this is what my kingdom looks like. And then Jesus says the pure in heart will see God. And do you know how many people can achieve a pure heart on their own? (laughs) Nobody. And I'm not talking about a decent heart. I'm not talking about, well, I try to do the right things. I'm not talking about, well, I haven't really done anything that bad. I'm talking about pure, like perfect. That's why Jesus is going to say later in this message, he's going to say, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect, pure, like a diamond. Like right after it snows, it's like my favorite time, like right after it snows and like no one's walked on it and there are no blemishes or footprints and it's just perfect. Like that pureness needs to be a representation of your soul, but it's impossible for you. And that's because this type of pureness and mercy and hunger from righteousness is not something you can achieve On your own, it only comes when you receive it from King Jesus. And for clarity's sake, I'm not suggesting that this requires no effort on your part. It will require effort. You're going to have to go to war with your own flesh and desires every day. And it's tough, man. It is really tough. And that's why you see so many Christians failing miserably at it. I'm not suggesting that you become a Christian and then suddenly living this way becomes automatic, like you're just some robot zombie on autopilot doing all the right things whether you want to or not. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is that by allowing Jesus to clean and rearrange your heart and being filled with the Holy Spirit, that it will plant a desire within you to live this way. And the Holy Spirit will give you the strength to live this way. Think about it this way. Like, I have to admit that I'm not, I'm not in great shape. Like, I'm not an elite athlete. And I know that that's probably hard for you guys to believe. <laughs> I know a lot of you guys are probably thinking, but Dustin, you look ripped. Like, you look absolutely jacked. And those are your words, not mine. But take my word for it. I'm not. I'm not an elite athlete. Now, 
Now, I have a desire to work out. I do. Inside me, I have this desire to be healthier and be in better shape. But the thing is, that desire is completely useless if I don't act on it. And I'll never get in the kind of shape that I'd like to be if I don't take that desire and use it to drive my actions. In the same way, Jesus is going to plant the desire in your heart to live a life that glorifies him. And he's even going to give you the strength to live a life that glorifies him. But ultimately, you have to make that decision. And it is a daily decision. The other thing is, when you are a Jesus follower and you aren't living this way, when you aren't pursuing Jesus and living a life that reflects him, but claim to be a Jesus follower, unlike the rest of the world who is kind of naive and unaware and don't really care about the severity of their sin, when a Jesus follower isn't living in a way that is aligned with the kingdom, you're going to start to feel that inside of you. Maybe not at first, but eventually. Eventually it's going to crumble you. Eventually, it's going to start to hurt. You'll feel distant. You'll feel broken. You'll feel this longing to get back to Jesus. You'll feel a longing to stop drifting and anchor yourself to the king. And maybe some of you guys are there right now. But again, even in those moments, it is up to you to respond to the desire that Jesus has put in your heart. When you bend the knee to him, King Jesus is going to give you an upside down outlook on life. You're no longer going to think the way the rest of the world thinks. And then finally, Jesus finishes the Beatitudes by showing us that those who belong to his kingdom will have an upside-down relationship with the world. An upside-down relationship with the world. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. An upside-down relationship with the world. And it is upside-down. Jesus says, you know how there's little to no peace in the world? Yeah, my people are going to be peacemakers. Also, do you see how the rest of the world is so desperate to get ahead and be comfortable and be acknowledged and accepted by one another? Well, those who belong to my kingdom are going to be slandered and hated and mislabeled, and the world is never going to accept them. And it's like, how, how does that work? Well, first, when it says, blessed are the peacemakers, I think we need to define what this means, because I, I think we tend to misinterpret that as Christians should be bringing world peace. And, and if you read it that way, it's going to feel too big and it's going to feel hopeless because that is hopeless. You and I are never going to usher in world peace. Peace will only fully be restored when King Jesus comes and restores it and when heaven meets earth and God fills all of it. And so if it's not world peace... What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And actually, it's fairly simple. Being a peacemaker most accurately means that you bring the light and life of Jesus with you everywhere you go. It means that this soul work or spiritual disciplines or whatever you want to call your walk with God, that this work 
that you've been doing behind the scenes of going to war with your flesh and surrendering to Christ and pursuing Him through Scripture, dying to yourself, struggling to, to do the things that He's called you to do, struggling to worship Him and follow Him, that this walk with Jesus that you've been taking one step at a time, being a peacemaker means that the people around you benefit from your walk with Jesus. That you bring the light of Jesus into whatever space you inhabit. If you're a stay-at-home mom, your walk with Jesus benefits your children and your neighbors and the people that you encounter on a daily basis. If you're a welder, your walk with Jesus benefits your coworkers and the people around you. If you're a plumber, you aren't just going and digging out flushable wipes out of people's septic systems. Flushable. You're not just doing that. You're bringing the light and life of Jesus with you everywhere you go that leaves people better than they were before you walked into their house. Basically, it's you saying, if the world isn't going to experience Jesus for themselves, I'm going to force them to experience him through me. You aren't going to stop world wars and solve world hunger and eliminate cancer or put an end to political tension and polarization, you can't do all of those things, but you might. You might rearrange the way that someone perceives the king and his kingdom, and that incites peace by consequence. And then other times, it doesn't. Other times, living this way doesn't incite peace at all. Other times, it invites hostility. Other times, because you follow Jesus and try to live this way, people will hate you. Or people will call you all kinds of crazy or bigoted or hateful. Or if they don't bully you, they will make you out to be the bully. And for me, as I read the final two Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness and blessed are those who the world reviles and hates because of their allegiance to the king. When I hear those, I don't hear statements as much as I hear a question. And really, when I read the final two Beatitudes, I hear Jesus asking where do you get your value? Where do you, in your life, get your value? And this is where we're going to wrap up. I hear King Jesus asking if everything else were taken away from you, if you had nothing, if you had no one, if the entire world turned its back on you and everyone else that you knew turned their back on me, am I still enough for you? Is my love sufficient for you? Is the identity that I've given to you, is that enough? If it were just you and me, are you still in? And there's only one possible way that you answer yes to this question, and that's by experiencing Jesus firsthand. You have to experience him for yourself. There is nothing that I can say to you that will convince you that Jesus is worth it. But what I can tell you is that he has proven it to me time and time again. You see, I don't worship on blind faith. Maybe when this first started, it was based on just faith, but I don't worship on blind faith anymore. I worship a God who has radically changed me. He's transformed my life, my heart, my brain, my soul, my spirit, they don't work 
the way they used to. I have experienced Jesus Christ firsthand, and now I can never go back to the way I used to be. And so now every day when I wake up, even when I'm not feeling it, even when things are crumbling, even when my back is up against the wall, even when anxiety is fighting for control of my heart, and even when I can't see the ways that God is working, even on those days I just I bend the knee. I bend the knee, right? Because there's no greater king and there's no greater love and there's no greater Messiah and there's no greater force in the universe that could have taken my brokenness and do what King Jesus did with it. There's no one better. He takes those who are desperate and he saves them. And then he rearranges us from the inside out and gives us this new outlook on life and then he uses us as instruments of peace and hope on the world. There's nothing better than that. And so I just, I'm going to extend the invitation to you one more time to bow down and praise Him and acknowledge Him and worship Him. Behold Him, invite Him into your life and He will transform you. Bend the knee now or you'll bend it later. But either way, Jesus Christ is King, now and forever. Let's pray. Jesus, there is no king greater than you. There is nothing better than you. I'm so thankful that inviting you into my life was not just a process of getting a new checklist of things that I have to be better at, but more than anything, it was having the strong tower that I can run into when I can't handle the things that this life throws at me, that I was able to experience your strength in moments that I just wasn't strong. I was able to experience your love in moments when I felt completely unlovable. God, I was able to experience your grace and forgiveness when I did not deserve it at all, God. I pray that in this place, Right now that your Holy Spirit is just resting on us, God, and just giving us a sense of clarity about these things. That we understand the invitation that you've extended to us to bend the knee to you, to follow you and pursue you and be transformed and changed and loved by you in a way that we can't explain. We can never earn what we are so thankful for. God, Jesus... I pray that through these words, through your scripture, that you're glorified and that everyone in this room, whether they've doing it for the first time or whether they're coming back to you, will commit to you and experience these things for themselves and understand completely that you are worth laying down our lives for. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.